cyber-assisted fraud has become commonplace. And for law firms, there is an ongoing need for awareness, prevention, and planning. Host Julian Morrow chats with Simone Herbert Lowe of Law and Cyber about the impact cybercrime has on legal practices and the practical steps that can be taken to minimise that impact. Simone Herbert Lowe, welcome to Risk On Air. Thank you, Julian. Lovely to be here. Simone, the rules of the American Bar Association include an express duty to keep abreast of risks associated with technology, and lots of other American state associations have a similar rule. Do Australian lawyers have a duty of technological competence? Well, that's a really interesting question. There isn't a codified rule. Right, so nothing express. Nothing express, exactly. But I think there would be very strong arguments now that there is... Uh, an implied duty to have a knowledge of the risks of any technology you use and how to mitigate those risks. The United States bar rules, as you've mentioned, they've got a, a model rule which says the general duty of competency extends to knowing the risks associated with the use of technology and that lawyers should keep abreast of changes in the law and practice, including the risks associated with relevant technology and that their legal education should extend to that as well. And that's now been accepted by the bar associations in the vast majority of states in the United States. And the reason why that is, of course, is that technology has really transformed legal practice in many ways. So as a lawyer, you are using technology all the time. Um, even if you don't think of yourself as a techie in any kind of way, in any kind of business, you're now using technology. And for the purposes of this discussion, I'll focus on mainstream technology like email and the internet and cloud computing. So if you're using those things, then I think a court would say that there is an implied duty under the general duty of competency to be aware of the risks associated with that and take reasonable steps to mitigate those risks. Yes. So technological competence, clearly an aspect of general competence for lawyers, but there could be other duties and obligations that might be relevant for Australian lawyers when we're thinking about these technological issues as well. Yeah. And if I can focus on sort of cyber risks, as opposed to perhaps the other issues that come up with technology, certainly as lawyers, we have a whole raft of professional obligations that make this area really important professionally. So things like your, your duty of care, your duty of confidentiality as a lawyer, fiduciary duties, especially in relation to um, trust accounts. They're quite general ones, but there's an obligation under privacy law. People will have individual obligations under certain contracts, particularly larger firms now and, and large clients are now requiring certain standards in relation to information security and classifications of information within a law firm. And then there's also regulatory and professional duties as well. So if you're a property lawyer, you'll be transacting in PEXA and the electronic network system. So ARNIC, which is the regulator for electronic lodgements in property transactions, has now said that there is an obligation for everybody who can access the system to have cybersecurity training. So that's actually part of the regulation for property lawyers now. And then, of course, we've got professional regulations um, and, and rules such as the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, which talk about all of the things I've just mentioned, like your competency and fiduciary duties and confidentiality and so on. So it really struck me when I started working in this area that it's actually that intersection between the professional duties and the technology risk that's really quite scary for law firms because 
for other businesses, if you have a fish and chip shop, for example, yes, you're going to be worried about being hacked or whatever, but it doesn't have the same implications for you as it would for a law firm that manages large amounts of money in trust or has very strict duties of confidentiality. You mentioned having large amounts of money in trust there. Trustee duties are particularly important to remember in this area of cyber risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And that's because of the amount of money that goes in and out of lawyers' trust accounts. So there's been a massive transformation as well in terms of money being transferred electronically. And I think, you know, many of us grew up with the system of checks where people would exchange checks at a settlement, for example, in in a big transaction. And yet now so much of this is done electronically. And unfortunately, we have a system where once money is paid into a bank account in error, if that isn't picked up and rectified extremely quickly, that money can be transferred out of that bank account to someone else. Effectively, money changes hands almost instantaneously now, whereas once upon a time, it was a process that might take a week or so. And so all these checks and balances took place that aren't necessarily occurring now. And the reason why that's particularly important for trustees is that Your duties of a trustee are really strict. They're quite different to the way a duty of care works, for example, which is all about a peer standard, what's reasonable, what would a reasonable practitioner do, was someone else contributory negligent or also liable in some way. So trustees' duties aren't like that. You have a duty not to pay the money out of trust unless it's been authorised by the beneficiary and you have a duty to protect the trust property. And so if you pay money out of trust in error... Even if you've been deceived by somebody else, you've actually arguably breached your duty of trust already. And and even if you were a victim of the fraud as well. And I think one thing that's really important to point out in this area is that, of course, many of us in the legal profession are members of the limited liability scheme, which caps your liability at maybe $2 million or $10 million. But that scheme does not apply to actions for breach of trust. So If you're acting in really big transactions, this is a really significant concern because you're talking about cases that are very difficult to defend and yet they're not necessarily capped by the liability scheme as well. That's really important to recall. And I suppose this whole area of electronic money transfers brings us on to what is one of the top three most financially harmful types of scams in Australia. The most recent ScamWatch data says that Australian businesses lost $128 million in 2020 because of business email compromise scams. How do business email compromise scams work and what can practitioners do to avoid them? Yeah, just on that point of quantum, I mean, it's always really hard to know how much these things really cost because a lot of these type of crimes and frauds are never reported. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. But certainly the ACCC said recently that up to $2 billion in scams each year in Australia. And the government said that cyber events are costing $33 billion per year as well. I mean, I'm certainly aware of that statistic that you've mentioned there as well. But I think one of the sort of intangibles in this area is that a lot of things aren't reported or quantified. But going back to your question about um, business email compromise, so that refers to really two different phenomena. One is when there's an actual email account intrusion. So somebody is able to get access to a business's email and often that's using a, a technique called phishing. So people will try and impersonate a trusted source. You know, they might send an email that pretends to be somebody sharing a document on Dropbox or OneDrive or something like that in the hope that someone will click on the link, go to the website, which has been set up as a 
it's a fake website, but it's been set up to impersonate Dropbox or OneDrive, and then they capture your login credentials, your username and your password, and then they can get into your actual account. So that is the kind of thing that can happen. But also um, this phenomenon involves actual just pure impersonation fraud using emails. There's an awful lot of the big frauds that you hear about they don't necessarily involve somebody hacking into somebody's email account. It's just a pure impersonation. Anybody can set up an email account that puts a display name as whatever you want. So they can just impersonate a business that way. Often they'll create a a domain that's very similar so that it's very hard to notice that it's actually a different email address. There might be, say, like a slightly different spelling or something like that, but something that you wouldn't notice and that looks on a first glance to be a legit address. Oh, absolutely. You know, the classic thing is swapping out an I for an L, which almost looks the same, and particularly when people are using small screens and all the rest of it. So there's that. But sometimes frauds, they're not even that sophisticated. They'll just have the display name of the person they're impersonating and it will just be a Gmail account and people don't notice that either. So you've got two different things that in this area of email-enabled fraud that are really important for lawyers to think about. Firstly, actually protecting their email system to make sure they're not hacked and being aware that sometimes their clients might be hacked and so to be a bit suspicious of emails they get from them as well. But then secondly, just those kind of pure scam emails is a really big issue if you are managing money in trust and you're taking instructions via email. And always be cautious if you get an email uh, about updated payment details, yes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so that's the real red flag in this area because often people will get payment instructions from a client at the beginning of the matter or if they act for a client all the time, they have particular details on, on file. And so the classic bogus excuse that you hear is that somebody's changing banks, so that's why they've changed their bank account details. I've seen emails where someone says they're being audited and so they need to change their account. That should really be a red flag if anybody says they're changing a bank account details for any reason whatsoever. All right, so we've talked about business email compromise scams. What are the other main types of cyber risks for legal practices today? Okay, so a type of crime that has really increased exponentially over the last couple of years is known as ransomware. And many listeners might be familiar with that concept already, but ransomware is effectively when the cyber criminals are able to lock up your whole network and your files and encrypt them so that you're no longer able to access any of your data or information. That is obviously a total nightmare because you can't access anything at all and I do recall cases involving people not having any of their trust account records, people being in transactions, for example, and things like that. But the really disturbing trend in addition to that is actually cyber extortion where people actually now threaten to publish your information, not just lock it up. Of course, if you keep really good backups, you're able to recreate your systems from them. It's really, really important that people understand how their backups are being kept, who's keeping them and do their own testing on that. I've certainly been involved in cases where people have outsourced their IT management to someone else and they've been assured that backups are being taken only to find out that when their IT company is hit with a ransomware attack, that their files have been encrypted and the backups have been encrypted as well because actually they weren't segregated. Mm. (laughs) So these are the kind of things people have to think about with ransomware is actually doing a bit of due diligence 
evidence around that, not just taking people's say-so and actually doing a practice and keeping things that are, are really separate. Yeah, and not just leaving it to the IT department. Yeah, especially when things are outsourced. As I said, that issue about publishing data is really scary for a lot of businesses and in particular law firms who hold confidential information. So again, going back to the the duty of confidentiality that people will be really familiar with, but you do have a duty to maintain confidentiality and you do have a duty to act in the client's best interests. Now, let's say you're a law firm that's hit with a ransomware attack and they say that they're going to publish your client's information if you don't pay the ransom. You know that you can restore from backups, but they've got this threat that they're actually going to publish information. And there was a really high profile case involving a US law firm a year or two ago, an entertainment law firm, and they're based in New York. They were hit with a ransomware attack. Apparently the hackers had a demand of over $20 million US, or they said that they would publish information. And the law firm said, well, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We're not going to pay you. And then the next thing they did is they published some of their clients' information. So it was apparent that they actually could do that. And this law firm acted for really high-profile people like Lady Gaga, Bruce Springsteen, lots of really famous people in the entertainment industry. And it was reported that Lady Gaga's non-disclosure agreements and contact details were published as a result of that. And then the hackers said, by the way, the ransom's gone up to $42 million. So it isn't just a theoretical risk anymore. And I think what's really important for people to understand is that sometimes these attacks can be really targeted. So the hackers can be very thoughtful and target a particular business, which is pretty scary. But a lot of this stuff is also scattergun approach. They're able to send out emails in email blasts of maybe thousands or even millions of emails that have those kind of malicious files attached. And that's why it's so important for staff to be taught how to recognise those things and how to be aware of it. Because often ransomware starts with a malicious email or somebody visiting a, a website that has malicious code on it. Well, just before I go and try and Google Lady Gaga's personal details, let's uh, discuss what lawyers can do in a practical sense and as a minimum starting point, I suppose, to mitigate some of these overarching cyber risks that legal practices face. Yeah, I'm not a techie at all. I mean, I come from a background of having um, handled claims against lawyers and then since that time acting for businesses who might have been impacted. But one of the things that really struck me at the beginning was so many of us have assumptions that get in the way of us protecting ourselves. So these are assumptions like my business is too small to be a target or you need to be a target to be a victim or this is something I can outsource to the IT department and I don't have to worry about it. As a lawyer, you've got all these professional duties that mean to me anyway that actually managing these kind of issues is now part of your professional duties. It's not something you can outsource to somebody else, essentially. But the other thing I saw is that a lot of these types of cases, it's not really an issue of technology, it's an issue of people. One one technology company has said that 91% of successful cyber attacks start with an email. So it's really the recipient's response to that email that's important. So certainly there's training around being very suspicious about emails, knowing some little tricks that you can do to check that does this email look like it's genuine. And certainly big companies now, if you think about banks, they're spending thousands of dollars on cybersecurity per employee. Big businesses are doing phishing simulations, phishing training, but smaller businesses and particularly law firms may not be doing those things. 
But the other issue, just coming back to that issue of what's called social engineering or the manipulation of people's natural tendency to trust. So a lot of these scams, there isn't actually necessarily a hacking. Sometimes there is, but sometimes there isn't. So a lot of this is just really creating a culture within the law firm. There's an awareness that this crime is happening and to be on the lookout for it all the time. So one of the first things is people, educating people. I'm quite passionate about this because I have seen the harm it does to people who are impacted by these kind of events. And that's one of the reasons I've done a lot of education and written an online course to try and share this information with people. Another area that you know people need to be educated about is passwords, for example. So many people don't know that criminals can basically have computer programs that fire every single known password and crack into your system that way. They can crack passwords instantly now with eight characters if they're just numbers for example so you have to have education around that and you have to have processes in place to make sure that people are required to have strong passwords but then in terms of the processes that you need one of the ones that I know Law Cover has been mentioning for several years law societies everyone in this space talks about if you get instructions by email that you should always confirm those using another method such as a phone call. And not the phone number in the email. Exactly, not that. But it's also to do it in an informed way. I think this is another really important point is that people shouldn't regard this as a box ticking exercise. I know of cases involving a really large fraud where people have made the phone call, but the person they rang wasn't actually authorised to give that information. So if you've rung the wrong person, that's no good to you in terms of actually verifying your bank account details. If that person happens to be involved in the fraud some way or they're just not authorised. So there's those kind of um, payment processes and education around that. In terms of preventing cyber incidents, it's really about people, processes and, of course, the technology that you use. And one of the most important things is to have multi-factor authentication on your email. So one professional indemnity insurer said that almost 100% of their cases involving fraud against solicitors would have been prevented if the solicitors had had multi-factor authentication on their email. Because as we said, if people can crack passwords in a moment, there needs to be something else to stop them getting in. There's gonna be all sorts of legal practitioners potentially listening to their podcast. There might be people in really big firms who are fortunate enough to have an IT department helping them with this, but there's also gonna be solo practitioners perhaps that have been using a really old email service that doesn't have multi-factor authentication. And that's a really dangerous position to be in because if someone can crack your password, if you share passwords in the office, then you're really exposed and people should you know, just think about transferring their email service. You can even do that and keep your old email address and migrate emails and so on. There's all sorts of things you can do, but it's really important to have multi-factor authentication on your email so that someone can't just guess your password and get in. Simone, if a lawyer calls the number 1-800-BREACH, yes. who will they get through to and when should a lawyer call that number? Yeah, okay. So 1-800-BREACH is the hotline to ring under law covers cyber insurance policies. Just in terms of how the the cyber policy works, the great thing about that is if you're a legal practice that is insured under the law cover professional indemnity policy, you will automatically be entitled to claim cover under the cyber policy. So the cyber policy cover is capped at $50,000, but it's designed to cover different things to what's under the professional indemnity policy, which is there to cover third-party claims. So under the cyber policy, it's things like incident response, business interruption, you are able to 
access advice as part of the incident response if you're in a ransomware situation and unfortunately one of the options you need to consider is whether to make the site extortion payment for example so what that's what that policy is there for many firms will take out their own cover in excess of that but it, it is great for people to know that that is available as a resource if they are in this situation and and so that's why you ring the 1800 breach they will put you through with people who are experts in responding to this um, because that's another thing i hadn't realized before i started working in this area is that you think that everyone in IT knows the same stuff, but people who just work in incident response for ransomware attacks and other cyber attacks, they often have keys to unlock the ransomware. A lot of this sort of malicious software can be quite old and there are keys to unlock it and various law enforcement agencies will share that information as well. So the people who are trained in this will have really specialist up-to-date knowledge about particular malware and how you unlock it or whether or not that's even possible and so on. So yes, it's really important to have your own IT support on speed dial if you have this kind of scenario, but just be aware as well that those people who work on the help desk with insurance policies like this are extremely specialist in this area and an excellent resource for people in this situation. So yeah, speak to the uh, the tech experts if there's a critical issue and do it ahead of time as well. But remember also that that human factor is so crucial in so many breaches of security. And on that point, you mentioned earlier, Simone, the idea of staff awareness and preparedness. What should practitioners and firms be doing in terms of making staff alert and not too alarmed, but aware and prepared for dealing with cyber risk? Yeah, so certainly... Everybody needs to be aware of the risks in this area and the scale of cybercrime globally now. So there's an organisation called Cybersecurity Ventures that publishes statistics and they say cybercrime will exceed the value of the international drugs trade for all major illicit drugs combined and that if it was an economy, it would be the third biggest economy in the world. So this is a really big problem. It's not some little niche thing that people can disregard. And so... So training involves people being aware of that, it involves being aware of the professional duties that make this so important, the different types of ways that cyber events and human error occur and practical steps they can take to mitigate that risk. And it is important to talk about human error as well because, yes, we are really concerned about criminal activity in this area, but a lot of data breaches are actually caused by human error. For example, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner publishes results regularly about the the mandatory notifications it receives about really serious data breaches. And this year, for the first time, they said more than 40% were due to human error. So what they're referring to there is, for example, sending an email to the wrong person that provides access to someone else's sensitive personal information, sending things out without blind copies so that you're revealing other people's email addresses and things like that. So it's also about human error and making sure people are aware of that as well. You mentioned that in order to prevent cyber risks as far as possible, it's a combination of people, processes and technology. Could you tell us a little bit more about the technology side of things? Sure. So um, I mentioned multi-factor authentication early. So that's obviously when you get a, a code sent to your mobile phone or an authenticator app on your mobile before somebody can access your email or other online accounts. 
One thing just to be aware of as well is that actually it's much better to use an app than a code in case somebody is able to do kind of a SIM swap on your phone. But in any case, any kind of multi-factor authentication is much better than no multi-factor authentication. The other thing to be aware of is make sure that you use really optimal business security software. You might want to have anti-phishing software that screens out malicious emails out of your inbox before you even see them, for example. Uh, really important to be sure that any software and operating systems are up to date and that you've installed any of the latest updates. When you get those notifications on your phone or your computer that there's a, a new update, it's usually a security update. That means that a vulnerability is being detected and you want to update that or patch that as soon as you can. Uh, make sure your antivirus protection is in place. And as we said, complete regular backups and actually test those to make sure that they are accessible and, and quite separate to the live system as well. And does LawCover have resources that might be useful for practitioners or firms who really want to get serious about this area of cyber risk? Yeah, well, certainly LawCover has been publishing a lot of articles and warning people through all its risk management presentations about this for some years now. I'm really excited that LawCover is going to be facilitating access to a course that I've written, which is an online course. It takes around just over an hour to complete. And we've had around 3,000 lawyers and law firm employees complete the course now. So it has been really written with lawyers and law firms in mind. And it is really important on that score as well, just to be aware that anyone could be unfortunately, the point of vulnerability in a law firm. So a really senior practitioner could be targeted because they have access to very confidential information or because they're able to authorise really large funds transfers. But by the same token, it could be a really junior person. So I'm aware of one case involving someone who, you know, a young lady in her first week of work who authorised several fraudulent transfers totally accidentally because she hadn't been trained about it yet. So mm. especially important for new staff to have really good training around this. Simone, you've worked at Law Cover, but now you're at Law and Cyber. And I was reading that uh, Law and Cyber provides legal advice and cyber resilience services. What are cyber resilience services? Cyber resilience is the concept that people talk about now rather than just cyber security, because cyber security, it's almost like a binary concept. You're either cyber secure or you're not. Mm. And it really has that focus on technology. And of course, we are talking about technology here. But when you work in this area, you realise that cyber events do happen, unfortunately. And so people have now accepted that cyber resilience incorporates that concept that not only is it about prevention, it's about response. And it isn't just about technology. It's about the processes. It's about the education piece. And it's about being prepared if something goes wrong. So for example, you want your insurance place, but you also want to have a plan in place. For example, you don't want your plan to be in soft copy on your computer, you need it to be printed out because if you can't access your computer, you can't access your plan unless you have a hard copy. So one of the things that I've really focused on since I started my business is the education piece. I give presentations to uh, organisations and in particular law firms, and I've written online training for a range of business types now that have been completed by around 4,000 people. And it's really, yeah, focusing on the education. And so that might be the sort of user education, but then it's really important for business owners and directors to be aware of all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle here, not just the software. Well, Simone Herbert Lowe, thanks so much for speaking with us on Risk On Air. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode on current risks in legal practice to stay up to date. Mm-hmm.